The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Forty years ago today, the President of the United States gave a speech at the Hilton Hotel in Washington and exited the building to find a man waiting to kill him. March 30th, 1981. Mr. President! John Hinckley Jr. fires six shots at President Ronald Reagan. A bullet lodges an inch away from his heart. Reagan is rushed into the operating room and tells his doctors, I hope you're all Republicans. Presenting to you, the President of the United States. Our 40th president survived, of course. And besides his toughness, the shooting showed the American people that the great communicator also had quite a sense of humor. Letter came from Peter Sweeney. He's in the second grade in the Riverside School in Rockville Center. And he said, I hope you get well quick, or you might have to make a speech in your pajamas. Ronald Reagan was Ronald Reagan in all situations, but that line as he was wheeled into the operating room, I hope you guys are Republicans, funny, funny. But I wonder if it would be quite so funny today if it were Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Rand Paul being rushed into emergency and wondering if that nurse over in the corner has a Twitter account that boasts she's part of the resistance. A decade or so back, I used to joke about the definition of the much-vaunted moderate Muslim. A radical Muslim wants to kill you. A moderate Muslim wants the radical Muslim to kill you. There's a lot of that about, and it's not confined to Islam. Since the events of March 30th, 1981, it has become harder to take a pot shot at the president. If you look at the video from just four decades ago, it now seems incredible that the public, the citizenry, the people were allowed within a few feet of the hotel entrance and a few feet of their president. Instead, in a supposed self-governing republic of citizen representatives, when the president speaks, the town is shut down for blocks around the venue, and he never comes within sight of persons who haven't been thoroughly vetted. America is out there, somewhere, far beyond the security perimeter. 150 years ago today, March 30th, 1871, the Royal Albert Hall was opened in London by Queen Victoria. Actually, she didn't do much of the opening. Her Majesty was overcome with emotion, and it was left to her son, the Prince of Wales, to give the speech. The Queen's only recorded comment on the building is that it reminded her of the British Constitution. It was supposed to be called the Central Hall of Arts and Sciences, but Victoria decided to rename it in honour of her beloved husband, dead six years earlier. If you've never been to the Albert Hall for the proms or for Shirley Bassey or for tennis, you've missed a treat. It's a famous enough building to have been mentioned in several songs. This is the most famous, as bellowed by untold numbers of squaddies during the Second World War. 
Four. It is a lyric about the distinguishing characteristics of members of the German government. But this version is from a recent telly show, The Man in the High Castle, which may be why the 21st century actor is excessively deferential to the Germanic pronunciation of Goebbels at the expense of a near rhyme. Hitler has only got one ball Goring, <laughs> stupid, very small Himmler is rather similar but poor old Goebbels has no balls at all. Hitler has only got one ball. The other is in the Albert Hall. Hitler has only got one ball. The other is in the Albert Hall. The first line is possibly true quite likely true. The second is, alas, not. Here is the second best-known lyric reference to that building. I read the news today, oh boy Four thousand holes in Blackburn, Lancashire The Beatles, A Day in the Life. John Lennon wrote those lines after reading the Daily Mail of January the 17th, 1967, which reported that a survey by the local town council had found 4,000 holes on the roads of Blackburn, Lancashire. Uh, now they know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. Actually, the capacity of the Albert Hall is 5,272 persons. And uh, from my brief acquaintance with Lancashire road holes, they're a little bigger than people. So 4,000 holes would be standing room only in the Albert Hall if holes can stand. John Lennon's words. John Lennon was shot dead in New York just three months before the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan in Washington. In those days, America was a mostly sane society with a few very motivated madmen. Today, it's increasingly an insane society uh, with a few non-mad people keeping their heads down. It's way past time for more people hunkering in the holes to poke their heads up. Enough with Blackburn, Lancashire. How many holes does it take to fill, say, Cochise County, southern Arizona? The county calculates that over 70% of the quote-unquote migrants within its jurisdiction are what they call gotaways. That's to say, illegal aliens whose border crossing is captured by cameras or drones, but who quote-unquote evade attempts by the federal authorities to apprehend them. 
Uh, and that goes on not just in this one Arizona county, but all along the southern border of the United States. So the world's lone hyperpower cannot defend itself against unskilled Latin American peasants who haven't finished grade school. The United States has the world's largest and most lavishly funded military to the point where it has boots on the ground as Lindsey Graham likes to say, in over 150 countries. Don't ask me why, but that doesn't leave a lot it doesn't have boots on the ground in. There are 193 members of the United Nations, so if you exclude China, Russia, Iran, North Korea and their chums, the United States has soldiers everywhere on Earth, but none to prevent thousands upon thousands just strolling into a country on orange alert. I'll have more to say about this later, but if the point of this vast global military presence is to deter America's enemies, well, I couldn't honestly say it's working, could you? I understand it's vital to the uh, economic viability of German supermarkets near the bases, but beyond that, it seems very confused about the purpose of a national military. And that's before you get into all the diversity uh, nonsense, like uh, the new special operations guy uh, who's now apparently being investigated over his uh, comparisons of Trump to Hitler. Because that's really what you're looking for in a special forces operation. As readers know, I'm not much interested in the hamster wheel of politics because it makes you the hamster, getting more and more worked up, keeping the wheel spinning and getting nowhere. There was a poll the other day, for example, showing that 75% of Americans support making photo ID a condition of voting. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't the Democrat position that photo ID is racist and intended to suppress the black vote because the Democrats, the most powerful racist institution on earth in the 19th century and the only one to survive till the 21st century, are so racist now they think blacks are capable of getting a photo ID to board a plane or to get a COVID shot or to enter a government building to complain to a congressional staffer about why they're 14 $100 check hasn't arrived, but are incapable of procuring the same photo ID in order to vote. So this new poll shows that overall, 75% of Americans want voter ID at the polls, and so do 69% of black Americans. Over two-thirds of black Americans think you should have uh, ID in order to vote. Uh, and I'm supposed to get excited about the finding of these polls, but it doesn't matter because the figure could be 95% of all Americans, including 99% of blacks. And it isn't going to go anywhere because America has a frozen two-party system in which one party, the Democrats, will never support voter ID. Uh, and in fact, are proposing to abolish it in those few states that do have it, not because they care so much about black American voters, but because they want entirely new groups of non-Americans, like those so-called gotaways, running past the border cameras in southern Arizona to be able to vote. And the poor old blacks just have to put up with that and with being promoted as too stupid to get a driver's license, because for the Democrats, they're just a useful cover for people who aren't, in fact, 
entitled to a driver's license, like those godaways at the Arizona border. If you're cynical enough to do that, why would you give a crap what the polls say? Oh, did I say it's a two-party system? In the other party, the Republicans, half of them are beholden to the cheap Labour right. So they never say anything except to bleat about the need for comprehensive immigration reform, which, like the Dems using the blacks, is just a cover. Uh, Although in the case of the Republicans, it's a cover for total surrender. And most of the other half, who are smart enough uh, to understand that no country, least of all one that's outsourced all its manufacturing to China, no country needs mass unskilled immigration in the year 2021. Uh, The guys who are smart enough to figure that out are also smart enough to follow their pollsters and consultants who say that if you start talking about things like immigration, you'll be damned as racist. And there goes that 2024 presidential bid. Uh, Speaking of 2024, what about that Christy Nome? Boy, she's done a terrific job in South Dakota, hasn't she? And she's not one of those fork-tongued Republicans you can never believe a word of, like that Nikki Haley. No, that Christy Nome is pretty well positioned for 2024. And that's why she vetoed that transgender sports bill, because, quote, transphobia has now joined, quote, racism as one of those things that will bury you in the media if you have any national political ambitions. So the delightfully telegenic misnome is the perfect face for the GOP, unless you're looking for a modicum of courage necessary to save a dying republic. The hamster wheel isn't going to cut it. You're going to have to get off the hamster wheel and you're going to have to figure out a way uh, to alter uh, the general disposition of the culture on these subjects. If you want to have a fighting chance, Christy Nome, Christy Nome is the perfect embodiment of uh, where the Republican Party is heading uh, if you start surrendering other turf in the way that Uh, She is willing to surrender even quite a popular policy position, such as saving girls' sports. The Derek Chauvin trial, well, it's political. That's why Minnesota's governor took it away from the boring old county attorney and handed it to his hyper-political attorney general, Keith Ellison. If Mr. Chauvin survives this trial under America's dirty, rotten, stinking, corrupt, multi-jurisdictional double jeopardy racket, he will face, quote, civil rights charges from the feds. One of the first things... Uh, The alleged Biden administration did, after taking alleged office, was empanel a grand jury uh, to investigate Derek Chauvin on federal crimes. If he survives that, if he survives the state trial and the Fed trial, well, he's looking at felony tax evasion charges. The Washington County prosecutor says that between 2014 and 2019, Chauvin underreported income such as $95,000 from off-duty security work and also failed to pay the correct sales tax on a $100,000 BMW purchased in 2018. Truly, once you catch their attention, there is no end. As you know... 
having been mired in a uh, lawsuit over a 270-word blog post, a case that will enter its 10th year in a couple of months, I always say the process is the punishment. So as a practical matter, if he wanted to avoid punishment for the rest of his days, Mr. Chauvin should just have driven his car north across into Canada and flown to Abkhazia or Transnistria. Speaking of my beloved, if deranged, dominion... The Mark Stein Show presents... Andrew Lawton's Canadian Content. Theresa Tam is the Anthony Fauci of Canada. How's that working out? Here's Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Canada's Auditor General has issued a scathing report about the Canadian government's handling of the early weeks and months of the COVID-19 pandemic. In particular, the risk assessments coming from Canada's top doctor, Theresa Tam, and the Public Health Agency of Canada. Tam had designated the pandemic of low risk to Canadians even well into March of 2020 when we started to see major spread around the world, not just in China, but also in Iran and Italy. Even as the virus spread throughout February, the Public Health Agency of Canada didn't update its risk assessment at all. And the Auditor General found that the reason for this was because the Public Health Agency was only looking at the number of cases in Canada at that exact moment and not the possibility of more of them, which is kind of the axiom of viral spread. As Auditor General Karen Horgan said, quote, the fact that the tool did not consider the risk of a pandemic or the particularity of a pandemic and remained at low is concerning, unquote. This is, I would add, despite the public health agency's mandate of, quote, predicting, detecting, assessing, and responding to outbreaks and new threats. Of those four things, Tam only wanted to assess, and even then, barely. Yet on Friday, Theresa Tam defended her response. The public health system, writ large, and globally, as well as domestically, uh, need to be prediction organizations, and not just... Um, being able to assess the risk of that present moment. It was not wrong. It's just that it is important to also provide what that future state might be like. So on one hand, she concedes that public health officials need to be forward-looking, but she and her department had just been reprimanded for doing the exact opposite of that. While Tam did eventually change her assessment to high risk, this was on March 16th of 2020, five days after the World Health Organization declared a pandemic, and 11 days after Tam now says she realized that COVID was not only serious, but that large-scale community spread was possible in Canada. Importations, our greatest risk, were from Europe and from the United States. And so I think around about that, so definitely prior to... Uh, the WHO sort of, um, you know, pronouncement, if you like, that we're in a pandemic situation. Um, for sure, you know, the world was looking um, like it was going in that sort of trajectory. And it was inevitable that a pandemic was happening. This was also around the time that Dr. Tam was telling people that masks actually make things worse because they give people a false sense of security. Canada's Health Minister, Politburo Patty Haidu, said that border closures are ineffective a few days before Canada closed its border. Although by that point, the virus was already in Canada, dancing around, it didn't really matter. 
Now, a professor who worked on that Auditor General's report says Dr. Tam is defending the indefensible. Professor Wesley Wark says, quote, the bottom line is that public health risk assessments were an utter failure and cannot and should not be defended. It's not fair to say that Tam's risk assessment wasn't predictive. It was just making bad predictions. Now, Tam's department has pledged to review its methodology by the end of 2022, by which point, by my count, we'll be at about two years and nine months into our two weeks to flatten the curve. But after months of downplaying the risks and running interference for China, now the Canadian government and most provinces are overstating case counts and projections by multiples of five and even ten, making up for how much they screwed things up a year ago. Now, this review that the Public Health Agency of Canada is doing, I have no doubt it will prove to be Canada's Durham report in many respects. People will expect it to be some bombshell that exonerates freedom-loving citizens and proves the wrongdoing by our public health rulers. But whenever it comes, it won't matter because the damage will already be done. Back to you, Mark. Hey, 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 Andrew. Canada already has a Durham report, the Durham report. Uh, Lord Durham's 1839 report on the affairs of British North America, which led to responsible government in Nova Scotia and ultimately for the Dominion of Canada and on the same model foreseen by Lord Durham throughout the British Empire unto the most recent constitutions for many colonies like South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands. That's a Durham report worth ballyhooing. The Durham report! The Durham report! The Durham report! to let you down, baby, but I got nothing for you on the Durham front. In fact, Donald J. Trump is demanding to know whether John Durham is still alive. We shall endeavour to find out and report back. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Not many poets, a few part-timers and dilettantes, but not a lot of career A-list versifiers have their own day in the Anglican calendar and those of a few other churches too. But John Dunn does. And tomorrow, if you consult your Church of England diary, is that day. John Dunn is unquestionably the greatest of metaphysical poets, and we don't need much arm-twisting to pick a piece of his. He was something of a reluctant priest who took holy orders only because the king demanded it. He became vicar of St Dunstan in the West, a church in Fleet Street, and became a rather good preacher, this uh, late addition to his quiver, culminating on February the 25th, 1631, with a famous sermon delivered by royal command 
before King Charles at the Palace of Whitehall, which sermon so exhausted poor John Donne that he died a month later. This poem is perhaps a bit saucy for a chap's high holy day, but I trust any Church of England clerics listening will forgive me. It starts with a rhetorical query from man to woman. I wonder what you and I did till we loved. Hey-ho! The world is a wild and vast place, says the poet, but let the sea discoverers sail off in pursuit of new lands. This room with you in it is all the world and more. Forget the distant horizon. With each other, we can possess our own worlds. Each of us is one and each of us has one, which is not an uncomforting thought. In these turbulent times, as the planet roils, it is a consolation to turn inward to the personal and intimate, even if the likes of Boris and Justin don't lock you down and force you to do it. First published in 1633, two years after his death in the collection Songs and Sonnets, by John Donne, The Good Morrow. I wonder by my troth, what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly, or snorted we in the seven sleeper's den? Twas so, but this all pleasure's fancies be. If ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got, twas but a dream of thee. And now good morrow to our waking souls, which watch not one another out of fear. For love, all love of other sights, controls and makes one little room and everywhere. Let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone. Let maps to other worlds on worlds have shown. Let us... Possess one world, each hath one and is one. My face in thine eye, thine in mine appears, and true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres, without sharp north, without declining west? Whatever dies was not mixed equally, if our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike, that none do slacken, none can die. A poem from Me to You by John Donne, The Good Morrow, almost four centuries old, and it is a pleasing thought to turn inwards to love as the world churns, but to be honest, I wonder if that too is slipping beyond our reach in the, quote, declining West, as the social engineering accelerates and societal norms are bulldozed to the point where forming the kind of relationship Dunn describes becomes all but impossible. Ah, but let's leave that for another day. Let us possess one world, a world where such things remain possible. <laughs> Mark's mailbox is...
Who's on the air? Elizabeth Neville, a first-month founding member of the Mark Stein Club from New Jersey, writes, Still hoping to hear Mark's thoughts on this question. I never seem to get early enough in the queue on live Q&A day. Uh, well, we'd, uh, yeah, we did that Thursday. So, um, yeah, you, it's basically getting like Black Friday now, Elizabeth. You need to be camped out on the sidewalk 48 hours beforehand. Anyway, Elizabeth continues, For so long, our freedom of speech, indeed our very freedom of thought, has been most obviously threatened by the West's refusal to defend itself uh, against attacks by radical Islamists. The threat of communist China is the, quote, discovered Czech and was clearly revealed last March with the release of the deadly China virus. My question is, what's your take on how this threat was revealed? Was it China all along? while we were distracted by jihadis. Is it somehow related? Thank you for all you do, Mark. Well, thank you, uh, Elizabeth. I take it you're using the phrase discovered check in the chess sense, where your opponent moves some relatively unthreatening piece out of the way and you discover his queen now has a direct line of attack at you. Um, I'm not sure I really see last March as a discovered check, except in a somewhat qualified way. There were those who thought China was just an economic rival, and then it moves its benign T-shirt factory porn to one side, and whoa, there's suddenly a super spreader Wuhan queen barreling down on you, and you realise they don't want just to sell you cheap crap, they want to destroy you. Uh, and replace you as the dominant global power. But even that doesn't quite work because it's not really a discovered check if the other player refuses to discover it, if he refuses to acknowledge your barreling queen and insists it's really the same old T-shirt factory porn, which is what Anthony Blinken, the fellow who purports to be the US Secretary of State, was doing in Alaska the other day, droning for a recitation of hoary old grievances uh, Uyghurs and intellectual property theft, and not a single mention of the virus uh, that Chairman Xi weaponized and unleashed on the world. So we have a discovered check that our rulers have yet to discover, apparently. I look at it this way, Elizabeth. Decline is a choice, as Charles Krauthammer used to say. But if you do choose it, you don't get to choose who exploits it. Declining powers get preyed on from all sides. If you go back a century, the British Empire was at its territorial peak. After the Great War, it had added more land all over the globe, from the Ottoman Middle East to German New Guinea. But at the same time, there were all kinds of His Majesty's subjects who discerned a certain softness, uh, a certain weakness. Uh, South African Boers, Irish Republicans, Indian nationalists, not all of these people got on. Uh, South African Boers had no time for Indian nationalists and vice versa, but they learned from each other in terms of how you can poke and prod and test the metropolitan power. We have a similar situation going on today. For example, there's a global pandemic and international travel is locked down and America's northern border has been closed for over a year. And yet the southern border is wide open to human traffickers and drug cartels. Um, and incidentally, for you old school Democrats out there, human traffickers is a fancy name for slavers. 
you know, just like your party, they own these people. So there's nothing nice and heartwarming and sentimentalist crap stapled to the foot of the Statue of Liberty about it. So the global hyperpower, uh, which has put in place a panopticon security state on permanent orange alert for almost two decades, cannot defend itself against Latin American peasants walking across its southern border, or chooses not to defend itself, because decline is a choice. And then if, say, a man guns down 10 Americans in a supermarket, the media are on it until the man turns out to be not a white loner who listens to talk radio and lurks on QAnon, uh, but rather a Muslim refugee from Syria. And at that point, the cable channels lose all interest and the cops profess bewilderment as to any motive and the obligatory New York Times unreadable thumbsucker think piece mentions the word Muslim only once and not until the 14th paragraph. And an American military whose last unambiguous victory is now barely within living memory is most excited by its new four-star diversity consultant. I could go on with other examples, but all these things tell the world this is no longer a serious power. And by tell the world, I mean everybody. If you're a Chairman G, you get it. And if you're a 12-year-old MS-13 wannabe walking up from Honduras, you get it. And everybody in between Chairman G and that 12-year-old gets it. Elizabeth wonders if it was China all along and the jihad a mere distraction. No, Islam is a demographic threat. It has the numbers, and it has will. And those will prove dispositive in large parts of Europe, uh, and thereby take out uh, um, most of America's principal allies. But in other spheres, uh, Islam is economically moribund and irrelevant. Uh, China is the geostrategic threat because it has Islam's will, but is also the dominant economic power and increasingly a dominant military power. But these distinctions don't matter because America's the one they're all trying to knock off. So at ground level, there's a Sino-Russo-Islamic alliance of convenience. I talked about that a little in America alone 15 years ago. And you can see it today in things like that recent naval exercise uh, with the Chaikoms, Putin and the Mullahs. But you can also see it, for example, in the silence. It's even in our Chinaman song uh, that we uh, introduce our little Chinese features with. The Chinaman song. Uh, has references to the Uyghur, to the uh, Muslim world silence on uh, what China is doing to the Uyghurs because they've been uh, at a certain crude level they've been bought off those Muslim countries, uh, but at another level they're noisier about. Uh, what America or what Britain or what Europe is doing to Muslims because they see the West as the principal obstacle to the Dar al-Islam. And what uh, China is doing to Muslims comes secondary to that. But it doesn't matter, you know, uh, Chinese queen, Russian rook, Islamic bishop, it all works because whatever their limitations, they're all serious. China's serious, 
Russia's serious, Islam's serious, the 12-year-old MS-13 Honduran gangbanger is serious, and we're a joke, with a ruling class whose left bleats exhausted laugh lines like diversity is our strength, and whose right says send money now to sendmoneynow.com so we can buy Brad Passhole a bigger beach house. Tales for our time, songs of the week, and of course, the Mark Stein Show. Stein Online is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Members of the Mark Stein Club have access to the full catalog of Stein content, transcripts, and discounts, as well as the opportunity to ask Mark questions and engage with other club members in our comments section. Join the Mark Stein Club today by heading to www.steinonline.com. That's www.steinonline.com. Dirk Bogard was born 100 years ago, March the 28th, 1921. He was a very fine actor in some rather good films, The Servant and Victim and Death in Venice, and in an awful lot of very blah films. And when the acting work started to thin, he became a best-selling writer of novels, of memoirs, of uh, Daily Telegraph columns. Yes, the Daily Telegraph, where he was nominally a colleague of mine some years back. But uh, upon the occasion of his centennial, I'd like to note not the things he did a lot of, but something he did just the once and never again. One day in the late 1950s, a man called Marcel Stellman went to the movies back when Dirk Bogard was an English matinee idol. Now, it's many years since I last saw Mr. Stellman, but he's uh, basically a Belgian chancer. Uh, Bogard was semi-Belgian himself, as am I. There's a lot of us about. And uh, Mr. Stellman is a jack-of-all-trades and a great survivor. For example, he's the man behind one of the most successful shows in the history of British television, Countdown, with Richard Whiteley and Carol Vorderman. And no, 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 if you're one of our British listeners, don't write in to say they're no longer the hosts. It's like Regis and Kathy Lee. If they're not still doing it, I don't want to know. And uh, aside from Countdown, Marcel Stellman has worked on uh, Pinky and Perky uh, at the BBC. And every couple of decades, he writes a hit single. In the 50s, it was Tulips from Amsterdam for Max Bygraves. And it, in the 70s, it was a little love and understanding with Gilbert Becot. Uh, so one day, he's in the stalls watching Dirk Bogard up on the screen in Doctorate Large or Doctorate C or some such. And he thinks to himself, this is ridiculous. This is a great actor and the birds are crazy for him. And the writers can't give him anything better than this driveling dialogue. All this man needs is some really good lines. So Marcel Stellman went home, booked a studio and an orchestra, rustled up some arrangements, and invited Dirk Bogard to act song lyrics. I was a stranger in the city, out of town with the people I knew. I had that feeling of self-pity, what to do, what to do. What to do? <laughs> the outlook was decidedly blue. But as I walked through the foggy streets alone, it turned out to be the luckiest day I've ever known. 
a foggy day in London town. Had me low and had me down. I viewed the morning with alarm. The British Museum had lost its charm. Yeah, really? Elvis Costello says that if the party's gone on a little too long and you want the guests to skedaddle, nothing clears the room faster than slipping onto the record player Dirk Bogard's Lyrics for Lovers. Oh, will you never let me be? Will you never, never set me free? The ties that bound us are all still around us. There's no escape that I can see, and still those little things remain. The things that bring me happiness or pain. A cigarette that bears a lipstick's traces. An airline ticket to romantic places. And still my heart has wings. These foolish things remind me of you. A, a tinkling piano in, in, a, in the next apartment. Those, those stumbling words that told you what my heart meant. Like the fairgrounds, painted swings. <laughs> these, these foolish things remind me of you. You came, you saw, and you conquered me. When you did that to me, I, I somehow knew that this had to be. I dissent from Elvis Costello's room-clearing technique. In my experience, if the unwanted guests are headed to the door, nothing gets them to turn around and resume their places, agog in horrified fascination, like a great actor declaiming smoke gets in your eyes. They asked me how I knew my true love was true. And I, of course, replied, something here inside couldn't be denied. They said someday you'll find all who love are blind. When your heart's on fire, you must realize smoke gets in your eyes. So I chaffed them and I I, I gaily laughed to think that they could doubt my love. And yet today my love has flown away and I'm without my love. And now laughing friends deride tears I cannot hide. So I smile and say when a lovely flame dies smoke gets in your eyes. This isn't what they call talk singing, like uh, Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady, or Telly Savalas intoning If. Uh, for one thing, Mr. Bogard pays no heed to what Eric Rogers' orchestra is doing. Uh, and so he's often galloping 16 bars ahead. Here the musicians are playing Jerome Kern's lovely tune. And Dirk Bogard is reciting Dorothy Field's lovely words. And ne'er the twain shall meet. Someday, when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I'll be all aglow just thinking of you. 
and the way you look tonight. Oh, but you're lovely, with your smile so warm and your cheeks so soft. There's nothing for me but to love you, just the way you look tonight. With each word, your tenderness grows, tearing my heart apart. And that laugh that wrinkles your nose touches my foolish eyes. Anyone can make a bad album, but it is given to very few to make one of the all-time great bad albums. And actually, it takes a lot of guts to put something like this out there. Uh, and if you did as well as Dirk Bogard did, the all-time bad album becomes sort of beloved as the decades go by. At the suggestion of Ian Gardhouse, the producer of the BBC's Loose Ends, I used this track as the punchline for a joke on the radio many years ago. And about three days later, I chanced to be at a book launch at which Dirk Bogard was present. And he sidled up to me with a uh, slightly enigmatic expression on his face and then said in an amused drawl, Moonlight and love songs, never out of date. He's right. To the point where you don't even need to sing the love songs. Moonlight and love songs, never out of date. Hearts full of passion, jealousy and hate. Woman needs man and man must have his mate. That no one can deny. It's still the same old story. A fight for love and glory. A case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. Maybe he should have done the song we started today's show with. Hitler has only got one ball. The other is in the Albert Hall. <laughs> that will almost do it for today's show. As you know, I've done the introduction to Mark Morano's new book, Green Fraud, Why the Green New Deal is Worse Than You Think. If you're getting the runaround from your local bookstore, uh, you can get it right here at the Stein store, and I'll be honoured to autograph it for you. Or you can get big-time savings if you buy it in a special denialist double bill with my book, A Disgrace to the Profession. That's one of our uh, special offers uh, at the Stein Online Bookstore, A Fraud and a Disgrace. Uh, tomorrow, Laura's links will round up the internet for you. Oh, we can't leave you with all this soliloquizing of blameless popular ditties. So here's Dirk Bogard in the 1965 film Darling with a rather pleasing Johnny Dankworth tune, starting off with uh, the usual talky-talky and then doing something unprecedented, bursting into song. Stay safe, stay free and steer clear of the weird and creepy voice breathily insisting, Darling. Just by saying, darling, she could fill my world with wonder. So I lived to hear her whisper.
that we would go on forever. But it was, it was never to be.